0: Welcome to episode 30 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. This episode, we're following up on the story from last time and looking at further developments with the Guomindong, the Soviet military advisors, and the communists in the Guomindong region. This episode, we'll see the tightening up of the revolutionary government in Guangzhou and the escalation of tensions with the British as the May 30th movement comes to the Pearl River Delta region. Let's start with the first military campaign waged by the newly trained and armed National Revolutionary Army. When Sun Yat-sen left for Beijing at the end of 1924, the forces of the warlord Chen Zhongming in eastern Guangdong saw an opportunity to retake Guangzhou. Chen gathered together a coalition of generals and military units opposed to the Kuomintang and was probably receiving funding from the Guangzhou merchants who had recently had their merchant corps crushed, as we discussed in the last episode. In total, he had around 50,000 troops and arrayed them against Guangzhou along three fronts. In response, the Kuomintang and Soviets pulled together what they called the Allied Army. Along the northern and center fronts troops from provincial armies faced off against Chen's forces. On the northern front were Yunnanese troops while the Guangsha army held the center front. Neither of these fronts actually saw much fighting. Rather, most of the fighting took place during a six-week campaign along the southern front which was dubbed the Eastern Expedition and began in early February 1925. The southern front forces numbered about 10,000, with a bit under 3,000 provided by the Wampoa Academy, divided into two regiments led by Chiang Kai-shek. These came to be called the Party Troops. While the expedition was formally led by a Chinese general, the overall strategy for the campaign was devised by General Vasily Blücher, an extremely talented and charismatic Soviet general who was something of a natural military genius, and who also weighed in with day-to-day advice as the campaign unfolded. By the end of March, Chen Zhongming had been forced to escape to Hong Kong, and eastern Guangdong was solidly in the hands of the Kuomintang the political training of the troops from Wampoa stood in contrast to the warlord troops that the peasants of the Chinese countryside had become accustomed to. Probably the greatest difference between the National Revolutionary Army troops, or party troops, and regular warlord troops was that they didn't loot. This was an improvement over the experience just a few months earlier when the merchant corps were defeated in Guangzhou and a massive amount of looting followed. In addition to not looting, the troops were forbidden from requisitioning food and housing, from forcing locals to carry supplies, and from forcing merchants to accept military script. And party representatives were assigned to each unit to remind troops to observe these rules. This was a new type of army, and the local people responded with active support, including serving as guides, spies, and messengers. In fact, the service of guides was extremely important because many of the maps that they had of the countryside just showed the locations of towns and telegraph lines with no notations at all for the terrain. Political work among the population was also a central component of the success of the campaign. Hundreds of thousands of proclamations and leaflets were prepared for distribution by propaganda squads that went out in advance of the troops or accompanied them. In addition to distributing propaganda, they held rallies and emphasized that they were fighting to end the foreign oppression of China and to end the predations of the warlords. Perhaps predictably, the nature of what sort of propaganda should be employed did create tensions between communist and non-communist forces among the propagandists. As of January 1st, 1925, there were 31 members of the Socialist Youth Corps, the Communist Party's youth organization, which soon changed its name to the Communist Youth Corps, among the Wampoa cadets. And in addition to the Soviet advisors, there were Chinese Communist Party members in the political apparatus of the academy. Most prominent among these was the head of the academy's political department and also head of Guomindong Affairs for Eastern Guangdong, Zhou Enlai, a communist who had been a student leader during the May 4th movement before spending four years in Europe, where he had joined the French branch of the Chinese Communist Party. The the communist cadets organized something called the Spark Society at the Wampo Academy, which had enrolled 60 members in late 1924 when it was created. But in general, the communist cadets were careful about maintaining unity with the more conservative nationalist students who predominated at the academy. Clearly, There was a fine line that was being walked, and when it came to the concrete practice of rallying the local population to support the eastern expedition, the political differences came out between the more conservative propagandists and communists who emphasized issues of labor rights and land reform, in addition to an anti-imperialist political message. In his capacity as commander of the Wampoa contingent, Chiang Kai-shek tried to mitigate the conflicts. In light of later events, it's ironic that the right wing at this time identified Chang as a leftist. Chang did make some comments which could be interpreted in this light. For example, at a banquet in April celebrating the victory of the Eastern Expedition, Chang stated that, quote, although counter-revolutionary forces are very powerful, the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party are cooperating and we have the support of the people of the whole country. The leader is dead, referring to Sun Yat-sen, but there still is advisor Borodin to lead us, end quote, which led some on the Kuomintang right to think that Chang had joined the Communist Party. Now, you might be wondering, if all the fighting with Chen Zhongming's forces happened along the southern front and was conducted by the National Revolutionary Army, Then what was going on with the armies from Yunnan and Guangxi that were holding the line along the center and northern fronts? Well, apparently once the campaign began, it dawned on the warlords who were leading these two allied armies that the Kuomintang government in Guangzhou was no longer closely guarded by its most loyal forces and this would be a good opportunity to seize the rich tax base of the city of Guangzhou for themselves. The Kuomintang government retreated to a fortified position in the southern part of the city, and in May began drawing up plans to get the National Revolutionary Army troops back from eastern Guangdong. They also held a plenary session of the Kuomintang Central Executive Committee, which, among other acts, called for moving forward with reorganizing the structure of the Kuomintang's armed forces so that there would no longer be independent, nominally allied armed forces that might do things like decide to take over a rich city's tax base rather than march off to fight to unify China. In a fit of only momentarily impotent pique, the plenum declared that those who opposed the reorganization would be dealt with severely. If you remember from episode 26— the May 30th movement really didn't have an impact in Guangzhou until late in June 1925. The reason was that the beginning of June was taken up with the battle to retake Guangzhou from the Yunnan and Guangzhou warlords. Just as with the Eastern Expedition, an advanced propaganda team conducted work within the city to prepare the population politically to support the offensive against the warlord occupiers. Labor unions were mobilized to tie up the three railway lines in the city, and the population was organized to prevent looting. Fighting took place from June 6th through 12th, and once again the National Revolutionary Army was victorious. According to a Soviet account of the battle for Guangzhou, the Soviet advisors were central to the effort. The plan of attack was devised by Blücher and Soviet advisors were placed in the various nationalist units in order to ensure uniformity in carrying out the attack plan. Guangzhou had been the safe haven for the Soviet Guomindong alliance, and so retaking the city was absolutely critical. The political fallout of the first, of first the Eastern Expedition and then the battle for Guangzhou was to strengthen the left wing of the Guomindong in general, at least regionally and, by extension, in the central apparatus of the Kuomintang, which, after all, was based in the area. And, in particular, Chiang Kai-shek's position was strengthened because of his role in leading the nationalist troops. It was, after all, politically inopportune for the Soviet advisors to claim the glory of the victory for themselves. And so, Chiang Kai-shek was the main beneficiary of the need to offload that military glory onto a Chinese military leader. In the wake of the victory, Chiang took over command of the Guangzhou garrison, although this didn't mean giving up his other positions and responsibilities, such as being the overall commander of the Wampoa Academy. In any case, the efficacy of the alliance with the Soviet Union and the politicized form of warfare advocated by the Soviets and the communists had been clearly vindicated by both the Eastern Expedition and the Battle for Guangzhou. And this served to isolate the Guomindang right in Guangdong province. At the time of Sun Yat-sen's death, there were three figures in the Guomindang who were seen as his most likely successors in leadership. These were Hu Hanmin, Wang Jingwei and Liao Zhongkai. At the time of the battle for Guangzhou, Hu Hanmin had held the position as acting overall leader of the Guomindang. But in the wake of the victory, the Guomindang Central Executive Committee quickly moved both to advance with the reorganization of the armed forces so that generals allied with the Guomindang would not exercise so much independent leadership of their troops and to constitute a more robust national government structure than they had previously set up. Both of these moves were the direct result of concretely disposing of much greater control over the armed forces in Guangdong and of the territory itself as a result of the recent victories. In the process, Hu Hanmin, who was further to the right than either Wang Jingwei or Liao Zhongkai, was shunted into the position of foreign minister in the new government, which was a meaningless position since the Kuomintang government had no international status. But, you might be asking, wouldn't that mean he would be the one to manage the alliance with the Soviet Union? But the answer would be no, because Borodin himself sat on the Guomindang Political Council as an advisor, and the Political Council was the body which executed policies in the name of the government. As an advisor on the political council and actual representative of the state which had both funded the establishment of the Kuomintang's National Revolutionary Army and provided the expertise necessary both to create the army and to guide it to its recent victories, Borodin exercised immense influence and was himself probably involved in the political machinations which marginalized Hu Hanmin. Min. In contrast... Wang Jingwei was made chairman of the national government, and Liao Zhongkai was made minister of finance, which, unlike the foreign ministry, was actually very important, as what that involved was finally bringing under central control all of the financial resources that the various generals had hitherto been keeping for themselves. I cannot emphasize enough that this was only now possible because of the Kuomintang had finally established its own military force and the superiority of that force over that exercised by the various Allied generals. Having retaken Guangzhou, while the Kuomintang concentrated on building up a better governmental infrastructure… The communists turned to extending the May 30th movement into the region. The General Labor Union, which we met in episode 26, sent a delegation to Hong Kong to persuade the unions there to go on strike, and the communists prevailed upon the revolutionary nationalist government in Guangzhou to support the strike financially so that strikers leaving Hong Kong would be supported. By June 21st, thousands of Chinese workers were leaving Hong Kong and the foreign concessionary of Guangzhou, which was an island in the Pearl River called Shamian Island. Hong Kong was brought to a standstill, and the government there declared a state of emergency. Faced with an influx of thousands of unemployed workers, the Guomindang government pressed local merchants to contribute to the strike fund to support the workers, and workers at Chinese-owned enterprises, which were not being struck against, were prevailed upon to contribute part of their wages. Meanwhile, the French and British authorities on Shamian Island put up sandbags and machine gun nests on the two bridges which linked the island with the rest of Guangzhou. A huge rally was held on June 23rd, which was addressed by Kuomintang leaders, and it was followed by a march with different contingents marching in order—first workers, then peasants, then students, then Wampoa cadets, and then soldiers from other Allied armies. As the march went down the canal which separated the main part of Guangzhou from Shamian Island, a few shots rang out. Both sides blamed each other for shooting first— But pretty soon, intense firing was going on across the canal between French and British marines on one side and Chinese revolutionary soldiers on the other. One of the sources that I have been looking at also claims that a British gunboat fired into the Chinese crowd, but other sources are vague on this point. Certainly, given the disparities in casualties, it seems quite plausible that a gunboat opened up on the patriotic Chinese crowd. On the Shamian side, a French civilian and a British enlisted navyman were killed, while several Japanese and European civilians were injured. On the Chinese side, an official investigation found at least 52 known to have been killed, about half of whom were civilians, and 117 wounded. But the actual casualties were almost certainly higher. This is known as the Shazhe Massacre, which is the name of the part of Guangzhou right along the canal opposite Shamian Island. General Blücher wrote a report later in the summer which described conditions directly after the massacre. Quote, On the following day, after the shooting on the Chinese demonstration parade, the indignation of the population and the troops was so strong that at all the numerous meetings which took place, they insisted on attacking Shamien at once. Tens of thousands were parading the streets, clamoring for vengeance. It became dangerous for foreigners to appear on the streets. In the shops, the sale of foreign goods was stopped. Boycott completely paralyzed the whole of the foreign shipping between Guangzhou and Hong Kong. The Chinese companies refused to transport foreigners and foreign goods. The strike at Hong Kong gradually extended to all industrial, municipal, and commercial enterprises. House servants also quit the foreigners. Within a few days, the economic life of Hong Kong was completely paralyzed. Ocean steamers which arrived at Hong Kong remained tied up because all Chinese crews joined the strikers. The harbor was full of lifeless steamers. The city itself became a military camp. Detachments of foreign volunteers, men and women, were organized to provide for the needs of the community. The great number of Portuguese and Russian immigrants who had arrived at Hong Kong as strikebreakers were powerless to revive the life of the city. Strikers arrived by the thousands from Hong Kong and Guangzhou, where they were lodged in houses requisitioned and assigned to them by the government. This raised still more the revolutionary spirit. The population of Guangzhou was so excited and infuriated that one heedless word would have been sufficient to have this whole mass of several hundred thousand rush upon Shamien. Among the Russians, the serious question arose of taking Shamien by armed force and of attacking Hong Kong. The minority thought that an open declaration of war against imperialism by Guangzhou would swell the wave of the national revolutionary movement in the country and lead to general open fighting against the foreigners. In their opinion, even the risk of the loss of Guangzhou could be faced because the consequences of this scuffle with imperialism would still more revolutionize China and thus compensate for the loss of Guangzhou. It has been figured out how much time it would take the British to prepare for an advance on Guangzhou and a sufficient quantity of troops transported, and the opinion is that the town might hold out for one or two months from the moment when the attack was launched. The majority, however, did not share this opinion, believing that a declaration of war against England on the part of Guangzhou, which is cut off from the rest of China, the communication with the northern provinces is affected through Hong Kong and was interrupted by the British on the day of the shooting. Might become an isolated struggle and might not create a national movement in the other provinces, and thus would end only in the loss of Guangzhou. But in the case the Shamian incident should find an echo in the whole country and create a strong outburst of the national movement, then the majority did not exclude the possibility of a declaration of war against england end quote. as we can see from this report by blucher there was a lot of mass sentiment for declaring war against britain in fact the evening of the massacre wampoa cadets who had lost about 20 comrades held a meeting and passed a resolution asking to be in the front lines in an assault to retake shamian island and even though both the Soviet and Kuomintang leaderships decided that war against Britain was imprudent for the time being, we can see from Blucher's report that they did not rule it out of the question if events turned more favorable nationally. And on the Kuomintang side, we have this letter that Chiang Kai-shek wrote to Blucher on June 26th, three days after the massacre. Quote, I had drafted plans prior to the Shamian incident for fighting the British. In view of the present situation, it is necessary to carry out immediately the proposals on military construction suggested in my plans, e.g. repair of fortifications, establishment of mine factories and shipyards, etc. The government should complete within three to six months military preparations for an armed struggle against the British. British influence in the Far East has indeed reached a climax. I believe that, besides employing peaceful means of struggle, such as a boycott of British goods, our party should start military preparations to be completed within half a year for a long period of struggle against the British, which may last for three to five years. It is therefore necessary to establish within the Military Council a Special Affairs Department or a National Defense Committee— to which a large number of Russian advisors should be appointed. The committee should be held responsible for the distribution of work and the study and investigation of plans in order to centralize responsibility. What is your reaction to this suggestion? I am enclosing for your reference a copy of my plans. It will be appreciated if you would treat them as confidential for the time being and add to them whatever suggestions you may have so that they may be used to facilitate a decision on mi- at the meeting on military construction. Chiang Kai-shek. End quote. So we can see that Chiang, at least, wanted to start immediate military preparations so that war could be launched against the British in a few months' time. However, having decided that immediate military action was ill-advised, the Guangzhou authorities presented a diplomatic note to the British and French on June 26th they demanded an official apology for the shooting punishment of the senior officers involved withdrawal from guangdong waters of all warships return of the foreign concession on shamian to chinese administration and compensation for the killed and wounded the british and french for their part considered the guangdong to blame for the entire incident and refused to negotiate next episode will pick up here and see how events proceeded in the contention between the Soviet-allied Kuomintang and the British-allied warlords. And remember, when we get to October 1925, we'll then be at the point where Mao Zedong comes down into Guangzhou, fresh from the peasant organizing in Hunan province that we discussed in episode 28, and becomes acting propaganda minister in this newly strengthened Kuomintang government. And before I sign off, I want to remind listeners that ratings and reviews can help other people to find this podcast. So please consider leaving a rating or review if you learned something or enjoyed this episode.